Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project! This is our last Best Hope for Trash! This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-host, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? I'm doing well. I wrote a novel today. <laughs> yes, it's called The Subbery. I feel like I did a great job, considering that... All things considered, considering that this summary is so wildly outside of my normal ballpark for for summaries i feel like i nailed it judgment is ped dick <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna turn things on on their heads tonight since i wrote the summary uh i have a question for you two tonight fear uh which of your re- former or current relationship partners would you least like to walk in on you in bed with an alien oh <laughs> 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 uh, gosh Least like to walk in on bed with you with an alien. I had a I had a partner a few years ago. I'm not gonna name names, I'm just gonna call them M. Um, and I would least like her to be there. Mostly just because I think with the last couple of relationships I've had, if they walked in on me while I was sleeping with an alien, they'd probably join or ask a lot of interesting questions. So, like most, of, like most of my previous relationships, if they walked in on that, they'd be like, "I have some questions, but this is interesting." And this is the this is the point where I admit to you two and you know whoever listens to this podcast that I'm actually the only person who I've had a relationship with is the person who I am married to. Well, then I guess he's the he's your he's your Anna Sheridan. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. there you yeah. go. I I I will be equally uh, discreet as Justin, and I will just say that there is someone in my past that had rage blackouts, <laughs> and for my own safety, I feel like probably not that one. Yeah, uh, I feel like that would have gone a bad way for me. Yeah. Last, like, real relationship I was in, like, I was in, like, a polycule that watched Star Trek Discovery together. So aliens would probably be, like, that. that's a that's a bonus. Yeah. That's an ex- that's an interesting thing to add to the relationship. I feel like you'd get a high five for that. <laughs> Listen, I have very good cuddling material. <laughs> 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 this is going to be a really fun uh, episode description there. All right. Yeah. Tonight we are covering the season three finale. And because we have a lot to get through... In the words of David Lee Roth, let's go ahead and jump. So, yeah, I was as confused as you are that I'm doing this summary. Uh, This is not an episode particularly noteworthy for its Jakar thirst or shitty Franklin moments. Quite the contrary, uh, which I found upsetting and we'll talk about later, which are my typical hallmarks. Uh, This is because I was supposed to do the summary for Shadow Dancing, uh, since it's got great Franklin suffering for me to enjoy. Uh, But then our lawyers got in touch and informed me that there is a limit to how much I'm allowed to enjoy myself in any given episode. Yes, not want you being confused. So I had to pick between soul music and Jakar revenge or Franklin talking to himself and nearly dying. And I took the high road. So now you get my unique 
summary talents on the season finale. Yay for you. For reference to everyone, um, our lawyer is just Zathras in a boating hat. (laughs) (laughs) Please, please, someone with Photoshop skills uh, better than mine, which you will know if you've seen some of my uh, GIF efforts, uh, are not sophisticated. Uh, please Photoshop a, a, boat, a boating hat onto a Zathras. Zathras, Zathras, and Zathras, attorneys at law. <sighs> anyway, we open where the last episode ended, uh, with Delenn sitting by John's bedside, watching him sleep. But this time, it's from her point of view. She reminisces about the human saying, past is prologue, and we get a nice little flashback to the Icarus's departure and landing on Zaha Doom. But this time, the video message has a new actress. Real-life wife of John Sheridan actor Bruce Boxlitner, Melissa Gilbert. It fades to black on the phrase, those who would not serve were killed. And now we revisit the scene of Sheridan's first, and last, I guess, encounter with the slightly less sociopathic Ross Geller-looking motherfucker on TV in the 90s, Mr. Morden. Then back to the present, with Delenn watching John sleep. She goes for Chekhov's snow globe, and then the door opens. And it's Anna Sheridan, version 2.0, who greets Delenn by name, introduces her as John's, herself as John's wife, in full bad attitude mode, and asks what she's doing there. In fairness, I suppose it's not entirely irrational to, to be ill-tempered upon finding uh, a weird alien in your husband's bedroom. On the other hand, you have, like, let your husband believe that you're dead for, like, how many years now? Five years. So, yeah, we're going to get into this. We're going to get yeah. into this discussion. But I have thoughts about the the thing that is impersonating Anna Sheridan. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we're going to get into the, the Anna Sheridan meat bot that is in this episode very shortly. Anyway, uh, she's also dressed... Like, someone's idea of what, like, a futuristic, like, evil woman would look like. Uh, she's wearing the exact same coat that Lita's going to wear next season. Yeah, I was going to say, she she dresses exactly like Lita. It's the, I, I think it might be the exact same piece of wardrobe, because it's got the same weird, like, triangle boob framer up on top. <laughs> um, maybe not, but it's, I mean, it's got the same, like... It might be. Who who connects like the lapels of their coat right like right in the middle of your cleavage? That's weird, and it it draws attention. I'm just saying it's a weird one. And, yeah. Anyway, uh, we cut to John awake, looking at Anna, shocked. No one is shown cleaning up the glass from the snow globe, by the way. So I'm presuming that he's also stepping on glass in this scene. His first words are, "What are you doing here?" Which <laughs> is indicative of his entire. M.O. for this entire episode when it comes to Anna V. Delenn, which is fuck. Uh, yeah. John Sheridan just loses, like, all sense of, like, cogent thinking until, yeah. like, halfway through this episode. Yeah. Uh, I actually really like the acting in this episode because, man, he just looks fucking flabbergasted. Uh, Delenn re-enters in her usual costume this time, not John's bathrobe. Or her bathrobe? I don't know. It's a real nice bathrobe. It's a little too nice for him, so it's probably hers. It's, it's sized. It's sized a little bit large, though, so it might be his. That's weird. I figured him for a flannel guy, not like a purple silk guy. But yeah, you know. I, I, I'd say the purple silk is much more to lend than 
than maybe John. Maybe he bought it for her. Anyway. I have an alternate theory. Susan gave it to her during the spa day. Nice. Ooh, okay. what? Oh, we, we, oh, wow. Okay. What if it was Talia's? Oh, oh no. No. But it, no. Go back and, I bet if we go back and look, Talia wears like that same purple robe. Oh. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Wow. Already off track. <laughs> John looks fucking flabbergasted as Delenn like flees the scene, which is perhaps the best acting he's done on this show. Unless he's actually been caught in bed with an alien before by his dead ex-wife, by his dead wife, I don't know how he could have done this scene better. Because the look of just, holy shit, my wife is back from the dead, and my half-alien girlfriend is soups embarrassed, what do I do, is so good. I can't fathom where you would see this done better than by Bruce Boxleitner in this scene, short of somebody making a good X-Men movie. In which case, we would get, like, that every episode or two. But shy of dream X-Men movies, I feel like this is as good as it's ever going to be. So anyway, his first line out, as I said, is, what are you doing here? And Anna's response, uh, even though she's essentially a Doombot, is, excuse me? Like, the fuck you say? Uh, how about hello, man? And he's like, well, I thought you were dead. And this is where we immediately begin to twig to the fact that Anna Sheridan is some sort of shitty android or something. Something's wrong because her acting in this scene, Melissa Gilbert is a reasonable actor in theory. I don't know. I've seen her in other stuff. She can act her way out of a bag. Anna Sheridan cannot because her response in this scene is like, she didn't tell you. It's like community theater. And then down a step. It's real over the top. And you're like, who? You're not buying this, right, John? And John's like looking stressed. And you're like, John, John, you're not (laughs) buying this, right? But he just seems to go with it. It's like, buddy, she's clearly trying to stir up animosity between you and Delenn. Like, the only way that it could be any more transparent is if she were like somehow made out of plexiglass. Yeah. Or she had spider legs. That would maybe be a little more 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 uh, <laughs> obvious what's going on here, but uh, and then she d- does this like slinky saunter up into his personal space and starts doing a villain whisper like, "Don't you want to know what it's really all about? All you got to do is come with me to Zaha Doom." And it's like, man, girl, you have got to know that Sheridan's not that stupid. He's the leader of the Army of the Light. He's not that dumb, or right? is he? I or mean. Is he? I mean, it's Sheridan. So, yes, he's absolutely that dumb, as we will see, but hopefully not that dumb, that dumb. I don't know. We'll find out. We return from the intro sequence to find Jakar showing Ivanova a hangar bay full of nukes, as one does. There's no, like, warning for this 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 weird, like, plot twist. It's just like, oh, by the way, the uh, suck-up-to-Neil-Gaiman alien race just delivered a whole hangar bay full of nukes to Jakar. And he's like, ta-da! Merry Christmas! <laughs> yeah, it's a Christmas gift. This is this is, this is is what Jakar gives people for Christmas. Nukes. Bless him. Uh, he is get the you, best. That's get you a man who brings you WMDs for, for the holidays. What can I say? They are apparently somewhere in the five to 600 megaton range and also undetectable. Uh, I will admit, this was an oversight on my part. I have no idea how big five to 600 megatons is, but presumably 
JMS has access to an Encyclopedia Britannica, and so he picked the number that was sufficiently bananas for that to be a lot. What was the what was the tonnage? Five to six hundred megatons. Okay, for reference, the um the little boy bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was fifteen kilotons. Okay, so, so we yes. are in big fucking business. Okay, yeah, that's a lot. That's that's a lot, a lot. The idea apparently is the next time they know where the shadows are going to be, they're going to mine the area. And since they're hard to, since they're nearly undetectable, the shadows will fly in and hit them. And as Jakar so charmingly puts it, boom. In MedLab, Anna is acting something like a human, while Franklin and his court ordered supervising third party do some vague medical stuff. Uh, the the woman is just repeatedly waving the wand. Like, that's clearly all she's been instructed to do for this scene, because that's all she does over and over again. <laughs> the the science stick. Is it yeah, the, the same science, science stick, stick that, um, that Franklin waved over Delenn? Yeah. Yeah. It does nothing. It's, <laughs> honest to God, I think it's like when doctors are, like, making, like, notes on their pad, or now they do it on the computer. They're, like, filling out forms. It doesn't do anything. It's just, to, like, just to, to kill time so they can bill for it. Anyway, to try and ascertain if... Anna is Anna or some kind of weird bug in a suit Anna person like Men in Black. Man, remember Men in Black? That movie was fucking great. <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio goes from flopping around in a weird skin, flappy skin suit and eating bugs to squashing people's heads like watermelons in the, with the, the door of a car. Anyway. <laughs> We're going some places tonight. I had to check to make sure that this wasn't a beat line. It was in the outline because that that is on the top. That was oh, in my mind. Oh my god! It was in my mind when I wrote when I wrote this down that she was she was basically a- Edgar from from Men in Black. Anywho, uh, speaking of human shaped monsters, Franklin apparently has verified that Anna is a human. Is Anna in fact matching DNA, dental, and Sheridan seems real bummed. And Franklin is like, "This is a weird role reversal." I'm supposed to be the one lacking empathy. What are what are we doing? I'm on I'm not comfortable with this. Sheridan says he finally moved on, was ready to start a new life with Delenn, who apparently he hasn't spoken to yet, which is shitty and awkward. Assuming it was really Anna, this would be a shitty maneuver. The fact that we know it's not makes it makes us all okay with the fact that that Sheridan is being like a grade A shit weasel right now. But he doesn't know for sure. Only our extra, our meta knowledge of where this is going makes Sheridan okay in this episode, which is going to be a recurring theme. Again, lots of recurring stuff going on in this episode. The only thing that Franklin has found is two small scars uh, in, the, in the nape of her neck. Sheridan tells him, Jesus, please let this be a sign that there's something weird going on so I can stay hooking up with my alien girlfriend. Please look into this. Makes I don't care. Just keep keep looking. He says if there if if it's not really Anna, I'm gonna be a mad burly patriarchy man and be angry. But if it is Anna, and then he doesn't have an answer, he's just like Bawa. He just looks confused and sad, and then like wanders off screen and leaves Anna sitting there in med bay. It's 
have no idea what they were what they were doing with this scene. It's so good. He's just legitimately bum fuzzled what he's gonna do if he actually has to like pick between these two women. It's it's stupendous. And then he just ditches her in Med Bay. It's so good. Fucking this episode's I love that some of these episodes seem perfectly rational until you give them like a half a second of of critical thinking and then they just fall apart like a fucking newspaper in a in a thunderstorm and they're just like what the shit is going on this is one of those episodes john goes to finally goes to delan and he asks if it's really her and delan responds with i don't know and john is not great with his answer pro tip for all you writing tv shows here in the uh fuck i don't know what we call this decade now the 20s Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, don't include flapper. <laughs> yeah, right? One, don't include flapper dresses. And two, don't shake people. Yeah. It doesn't look good. He doesn't He doesn't smack her like they're gangsters in a bar in Casablanca, but it's still not a great look to shake the shit out of somebody, because, specifically a woman, because you don't like the fact that he, that she withheld information about your wife. Uh, this the whole dynamic is crappy, and the shake doesn't land well. The directorial whatever in the scene is really off because I also don't like the way that he's like chasing her around the room. That she's yeah. like moving away from him, and he's like following her. Like it's I get that they're aggressive. trying to show that he's mad, but it it comes across really, really uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's out of character for him, and it, I don't for a second believe that Delenn would not back his ass up after like the first time he reached for her. Yeah, He'd be because- like, excuse me, I'm I'm older than you, I'm stronger than you, I can pick you up and fucking snap you and have like a twig because Minbari are fucking strong as fuck. Don't, don't touch me. Yeah, like it's better once they're kind of on opposite sides of the room and they're kind of each backed into their own opposite corner. Yeah, and once they get into there, it, it gets better. Um, John is like, why the hell wouldn't you tell me if you weren't sure? And Delenn hits him with this fucking ice cold burn of anyone who would not serve was killed. That we knew. We assumed she would not serve. Which is like, look, man, your wife's either dead or she, or you know, we we assume she was dead. And if she's not, that means she's working for the shadows. And the look on John's face is just like, he can't argue with that. But also at the same time, like, I don't know. It's good. It's finally Delenn, like, not putting up with his horse shit anymore. Um, but she's legitimately upset by the fact that she did conceal this from him. And that's very non-Minbari. To, like, lie by omission is, like, the edge of honor for her. I get the sense. And mm, I would say that it's super Minbari, actually. That they don't lie outright, but they they only tell you... What you need point. to know yeah. and know more when yeah, you need to know a, it. Yeah, it, like, is, it is. It is. It's a very. I guess that is a very Minbari move. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's splitting hairs real thin though, especially when he's like, "Why wouldn't you tell me?" And it's like, "Well, you would have gone looking for her, and we couldn't allow that." Well, I, like, I don't. They're think actively that he's, manipulating him through an absence of information. So I don't think that he's ever asked her like. You know, that directly point blank. Like, you know, I think he's asked like, well, what about my wife? And she gave like her best knowledge, which was those who do not serve die. Yeah. And like, 
there you go. <laughs> it's yeah, right there. Exactly. We've always had that yeah. out. So this whole scene is is like th- th- I I will summarize this scene for you. Delenn, why why didn't you tell me this thing? Because you'd go do something stupid. Well, I want to do something stupid. Well, but we don't want you to do something stupid. It's my right to do something stupid. There you go. I saved you four minutes of your life having to rewatch this scene. Finally, he asks, if they had known that she was alive, would they have told him? And again, she says it would have depended on what she had become. And he gets even more huffy, I guess is the word I want to use, about being denied the choice. Eventually... In the course of this fight, they both admit that they love each other, and I think that might be the first time they say it out loud, which is kind of a crappy context yeah. for that to come out. Yeah. Sheridan finally says he doesn't know if he'll ever be able to trust her again, then leaves her crying in the garden and pieces out to go find his weird meat bot wife thing. Meanwhile, in our what qualifies for a B-plot in this episode, uh, in the Zocalo, Londo is tanked which is normal, and maudlin, which is reasonably normal, uh, apparently because he's been promoted, which is not normal. Talk about a terrible fate. He's to be an advisor to the emperor on matters of planetary security. Uh, Veer is confused, as is normal, and Londo explains it to him very patronizingly that the reason he's unhappy about it is because he's gotten too powerful and the court wants to keep him close and keep him on a leash, and if he does anything they don't like, they'll just kill him. Uh, as they're discussing this, uh, his next drink is is brought to him by a incredibly generic looking white guy with a very greasy haircut, wearing what looks like Morden's second best suit, who says that their mutual acquaintances have a message for him, which is get the fuck off B5 ASAP. Londo is like, I don't want to leave B5. And he's like, well, fuck to be you then. You know, I warned you. But you should get out of here, like, fast. And Veer's like, I really don't like this, which is the understatement of the fucking century. And that's our B-plot. We don't see them again. Like, that's the whole thing. (laughs) That's our whole B-plot. Everything else is A-plot. We just get this weird B-plot about Londo getting a warning and being promoted. In MedLab, we have a a small, terrifying segment in which Franklin is working. He's not yelling at anyone. He's not fucking anything up. He does a good job. I'm deeply uncomfortable with this section. Uh, and I'd like to go past it as fast as possible because I'm not at all happy talking about Franklin doing the right thing. Uh, <laughs> he does. He has a scan of Anna Sheridan. He puts it up against a scan of those weird telepaths that had that weird kitchen utensils glued to the side of their heads that Bester alerted them to the weapon components for shadow ships. And he just like puts them side by side, like your teacher did in high school with the uh, overhead projector and the transparencies. That's a reference. Some of you may not get. We just aged. You just aged yourself. (laughs) Well, my, my my logic that too. (laughs) My logic is if you're listening to a show, to a podcast about Babylon five, it's like, 70 30 that you you're old enough to know what what the fuck a transparency <laughs> on the projector is justin's looking at me like no man no i know up. what a transparency is no I, I i'm not saying you don't you don't i'm saying but you're looking at me like no no <laughs> you fucked up um anyway uh yeah franklin apparently does something right and has made a discovery I can't legitimately remember the last time Franklin did his job 
without abusing anyone or anything or fucking anything up along the way. Good job, buddy. Let's never talk about it again and hope that it never happens again. I'm not okay with it. I mean, I would personally like to see Franklin become like an actually good character because having having the one person of color character on this show like be a good character would be would be good. <laughs> this uh, would be good. I, this is the thing like, that I want. I agree with you in principle, but Franklin is at this point a well-established moral and ethical black hole for whom only depravity and horror is a relief. But maybe he had all the bad shanked out of him. I mean, you can just it's like it's like it's like a humor. You just bleed him a little bit and like all the bad comes out. Look, we saw Franklin in Med Lab and there was not a deflated balloon on 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 the gurney. If there had been like an empty skin sack on on the gurney with nothing in it, I would be on board with this idea, but there's there's nothing inside Stephen Franklin except <laughs> except nothing. It's just a black hole into which the good of other people is is sucked, and therefore you can't let anything out. Anyway, <laughs> see, I got some Franklin trashing in here. Nice. Uh, in Sheridan's quarters, Anna is looking at their wedding photos, which, fun fact, are their actual wedding photos. From Bruce Boxlander and Melissa Gilbert's wedding in 1995. They were married right when the show started. And Anna is trying to flirt with him very badly. It's really uncomfortable. I'm glad they only do it the one time. Uh, he asks some super elementary questions like, what have you been doing? Why did you come back now? And she's like one of those robots that can't process a divide by zero math question. She looks confused and flustered. And all she can say is, you have to come back to Zaha Doom with me. Does not compute. You'll be fine. It'll be great. There's a CPK in a flavor town. We've got everything. After some bad line on her part and some cranky <laughs> pouting on his, he says he will go with her if she tells him what happened to the Icarus and its crew when they landed on the planet. Fucking finally, we get some answers from her. Kind of. Sort she of. She says they landed on the planet. I mean, she tells the exact same story we've heard. Like, yeah. twice a season since the show started. Except... This time she's like, except they weren't bad people. They just they were just accidentally blew up the ship and killed everyone that you haven't seen so far. So like Morden and me, you know, like all of them, they all died. It was a big whoopsie. And like they're a millennia old race, but they definitely don't have a like a radio or like any way of us sending a message. Obviously, she also claims their actual name is 10,000 letters long and she's oh tried God. to pronounce it, which is the dumbest, dumbest. <sighs> I hate that. It's term. not the dumbest bit of world building in this episode, but it's a close second. It's like, there's one thing that's dumber than that. And this is a close second. She says like, if you go there, we there's all this technology. And if we, we make this deal with them, we could leap ahead a thousand years or 10,000 years into the future. And, this everything you've been told, it's all a lie. You've been you've been manipulated. And finally he agrees to go and she hugs him enthusiastically. And as the camera pans away, we reveal the captain's data pad with Franklin's bizarrely professional findings on it. Dun dun dun. Da, da, da. Later, Baldy saunters in, looking both out of place in a clean uniform and like he's incapable of wearing normal clothes that don't convey authority at the same time. And says he's heard about Anna and what can he do to help? 
Uh, something's weird's going on here because we don't expect Garibaldi to be offering to help people, but I guess this is what the scene needs. Sheridan acts like it's all good, no big deal, just, you know, dead wife back from the, back from the dead, and tells him, uh, by the way, all those Minbari that have been living on the White Star, we should get them, you know, coupons for the food court and identity cards and stuff like that, so they should all get off the White Star for a totally non-weird reason, no big deal. All at the same time, not shifts. Yeah, just, same just, time. just get them all off of get them all off of there, like right now. Before Garibaldi can even be like, "Are you fucking kidding me with this?" Uh, Sheridan goes deep, like abandons all pretense and goes full court press with the like, "Bro, bro, you're my bro now, bro, <laughs> bro." And Garibaldi's like, "Fuck, fine, fine. Just this is uncomfortable for me." And then Sheridan's like, got him. And then hands him this huge list of like, oh, by the way, here's a bunch of stuff I need you to do. Don't ask about it. Just do it. Garibaldi looks at the list and is like, are you fucking kidding me? And he's like, you already promised. We're bros. It's cool. By the way, if you do it all, tell me about the weather. Not at all weird on a fucking space station, Sheridan. Jesus, for a man who actively collects like (laughs) spy shit. And conspiracies, you'd think he would have the least nuance for spycraft. But no, he wants to talk about the fucking weather. JMS clearly... Tell me about the fusion reactor. or Yeah, like- right? JMS is clearly running on fumes by the time he's writing this episode. Sheridan goes back to his quarters to get ready for this dumb thing he's about to do. And he's loading his two PPGs. Uh, that's important. Two PPGs. When he uh, sees uh, Kosh uh. over his shoulder... Who says, if you go to Zaha Doom, you will die. Super helpful. We've already said this like 18 times. You want to add a little more new information to the message? No, of course not. Why would you? He then goes to the comm system to record a time-delayed message for Delenn. Sheridan and Anna go and hijack the White Star. And on their way out, Garibaldi's like, oh, by the way, it's snowing in New York. And Sheridan's like, cool, not a weird thing to say. And Anna's like, I'm a meat robot. I don't know what conversation is. This sounds reasonable to me. Let's go. On the White Star, Anna apparently is, like, not cool touching the lights. I don't know. It's very weird. She's like, I don't want to touch anything. I'm just going to stand here in the middle and not touch anything. Um, she says, Yeah, right? She says that there is a uh, myth, the shadows have a myth, that if anything remotely Vorlon touches their home, uh, touches Zaha Doom, they'll all die. Which... I feel like turns out to be true. I mean, (laughs) yes and no, because they don't all die. I mean, a lot of them do. A lot of them do, and we're going to talk about that. But if it were remotely true, a gigaton worth of nuke of them do. Yeah, but do you think that if that were even remotely true, the Vorlons would not have just like stuck pieces of themselves in like ten thousand? random people and then just airdrop them over Zaha Doom and then like, can't catch them all motherfuckers. And just, or like, I don't know, dump their garbage. They would have used Zaha Doom like a, like a garbage world and just dumped all their Vorlon outhouse <laughs> droppings on the planet until something got, got to the surface. There's no way that this is not real. I just assume that the Vorlons are just like not very imaginative. <laughs> and they don't think like, what? Well, you mean like we could shit and it would kill people? And it would be like, 
emptied our like if we if we like emptied our garbage over the planet. Well, they're yeah. like weird glowy alien energy yeah. creatures. Do they even shit? Uh, apparently, there is a physical component to the Vorlons. I was digging around in the wiki about this the other day. And we're, I have <laughs> God help. We're you. gonna go some places. We're gonna go some places in this episode. Uh, okay. And let's, one let's... of them is that there is a physical component to Vorlons. That's all I'm gonna say. There is a physical right. component to Vorlons, so they they may in fact shit. Uh, they they take the shuttle from the White Star down to the planet. They take the, so they get on they get down into the alien to the compound. It looks like a set made by a bunch of fans who have pooled their money to hire one Star Trek actor to write their to write their home written episode. No, it's that they reused the set from Narn. Yeah, that might be it. I mean, I've been playing Mass Effect 1 the last week, or last weekend, and it's just, oh, hey, you know how there are only three buildings of the planets in Mass Effect? It's one of those. No, but it's not just that it's it looks familiar. It looks like it's done on single-ply, like, composite wood, and everything shakes a little bit when the when the walls <laughs> go up and down, and, like, you can see, like... They're they're like angling the camera just right to keep the edge of the the edge of the walls out of frame. Uh, the whole thing looks like a low budget Star Trek fan film set, which is fine. That's it's, great. And if, it's easy, if it man. hadn't been for the fact that JMS withdrew that one episode, Star Trek wouldn't have even gotten a Hugo nomination that year. So it's fine that their set looks like a garbage Star Trek fan film <laughs> set in this episode. It's the end of the season, you know. The budget's running the real budget's thin. Empty, yeah. So they take him to meet, she takes him further into the complex. Uh, she takes his gun away, the one on his waist, <laughs> and takes him to meet this old man and Morden. And Sheridan's first question is, who are you? Which seems to immediately unsettle this old man. And he's like, oh, I'm just a guy. And he's like, no, really, who are you? And they don't do anything to his voice. I listened to this like four times. There's no like overtones of Kosh. It's just Bruce Boxlitner being like, no, man. I'm going to put some sauce on this line and be like, no, yeah. who are you? And the guy is like, fuck off. And then he says it the way that Kosh says it. God help me. I, I watched this fucking speech. I'm, I don't even remember how many times and I don't understand it. He's like, I'm the guy like who decides how high hemlines go and which, which <laughs> way the, the cars drive on the roads and, and, his, it doesn't make any sense. It's like an old man with, with dementia <laughs> babbling. And then he's like, that's me. I work for them. I'm the middleman. And Sheridan's like, wow, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> they brought me all the way to the, the, the heartland of the enemy to talk to their like pet parrot. This is, this is what I've done. I'm talking to a parrot. I think what he's trying to relay from saying this is that is that he is a part of people who make large sweeping judgments. I think this is like the people who's like set policy for the great things of the shadows. Yeah. Or like insinuating that the, the shadows are like behind the scenes on many, many things. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly, according to Lurker's guide, this guy, Justin, not Justin, Justin is, <laughs> I'm going to pronounce I like the, that vowel. I like, the attention, I like the attention that's being given to the vowel because nobody ever does. But I appreciate the effort being to distance myself from this fucker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
apparently this is the man in the middle in quotes and if you uh, per Sheridan's hippy dippy vision dream uh he's the 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 the, sh- the Sheridan that was in the middle and is the the shadow Sheridan he's their version of Sheridan the idea that the shadows bother with having a human representative to do anything for them is fucking laughable they have drones like Morden <laughs> I, I don't believe that this guy has any more independent. Yeah. And that's backed up, I think, by the idea that in a minute he's going to get verklempt about something and w- we'll we'll get there. So just give me a second. We'll get there and we'll talk about what I think he is. Is that thing with him being the, the man in the middle or the man in between, is that from JMS or is that just like some random wiki person? That's from JMS. Because I always thought that the, the man in between was Lorian. No. <sighs> Damn it. That would have made more sense. Come on. Yeah, sure would have. Back on B5, before we get back to this bibbledy boop, <laughs> uh, back on B5, Dolan receives John's message. He says that by the time you read this, I'll be on Zahadum. And then he says what might be the dumbest horse shit I've heard him say in a while. He says he's been reflecting on the flash forward he had on B4 of the fall of Centauri Prime and Dolan's warning about not going to Zahadum. And he thinks that the future happened because he listened to that message and didn't go. So he decides that if he does go, maybe that shit's not going to happen. And, and uh, I'll go, but not go. And no, man, maybe she says, don't go to Zaha Doom because you did go to Zaha Doom. And something bad happened. <laughs> I don't know where you're from, right? But if somebody does something and it went wrong and you have a chance to warn them, you say, don't do it. Not if somebody doesn't do something. On the other hand, though, he's been told repeatedly in like like half a dozen or a dozen episodes, if you go to Zahadoom, you will die. Right? And right. in the future, he wasn't dead. Mm-hmm. So maybe in the future, he didn't go to Zahadoom. Because if you go to Zahadoom, you will die. Yeah. So, so his logic is he'll commit suicide on Zahadoom. And something, question mark. The future will change. Yeah. The whole thing, though, plays out is it's just a bonkers super reasoning. fucking, like, bonkers reasoning. And I love it to death because it is exactly the kind of banana pants. Well, there used to be an Indian graveyard here. And over there is a cemetery. And if you draw a line between them all, it's the shape of a horse, just like the Denver airport back in the 20th century. Kind of like conspiracy theory logic. That would how be, dare you? How, how dare you? The Denver airport is a gold mine of stuff. And I know it talk is. About the multi-murderer Lucifer. I know it is, and that's why I reference it because I know you're freaked out by Lucifer. Um, <laughs> I I I both love and am terrified by Lucifer. So it it's just it's it's just a real fucking shenanigans thing. But again, here's here's Sheridan. Like you know, everybody is saying hey, maybe don't go do something stupid. And he's like, nah, I'm going to go do something stupid. Okay, peace out. Um, so he does. And uh, as he's talking, the camera's on Delenn. And the look on her face as he's describing this banana pants theory is such a picture of, are you fucking kidding me with this, you goddamn oaf? <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, but then he gets all sappy and she gets emotional. He tells her that he wants to live and he wants to be with her, but he has he, this is about more than what he wants. 
I'm I'm like 60-40 that that's true. I think it's also that he's he, he he's pretty convinced that he's got some like messianic future that he has to fulfill, but we can talk about that later. Uh, back on Zaha Doom, Justin goes on to explain. Justin goes on to explain some ancient history. He tells an abbreviated version of the whole old ones peace out, Vorlons and Shadows stick around story we've heard again, like at least once a season. And then the <laughs> another scene that does not hold up to any kind of critical thinking. The three of them, Justin, Anna, and Morden, try and describe the shadow philosophy of like the strong survive. In a, and I think they all think they're being really charming and persuasive, but it sounds like a serial killer <laughs> self-help group, like like therapy group, because they're it's, like it's a bunch of it's a bunch of eugenicists talking about like oh we'll just let God sort them out. Yeah, it's it's so fucking weird because Justin's like, well, you 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 mash them together and some die and some survive and the sons that survive are real strong after. And then Anna's like, you just it's all about evolution and strength and she, you know you can. And the arm goes up in the air. She's like holding her arm down because she doesn't want to do the heil. And then you've got Morden who's like got this look in his eye, this crazy glassy look in his eyes. He's like, it's like when you kick over an anthill. <laughs> It's like, guys, who do you think you're selling to? This is literally the last person on earth who would respond to this kind of like wear a white toga and drink the Kool-Aid fucking sales pitch. And they're all like, yeah, we're killing this, right? And he's just like, wow, you guys are, you guys are bananas. My favorite part is for sure when... When Sheridan is like, well, what about the ones that, you know, get lost along the way? And, or what about the ones that don't make it? And Justin is like, oh, sure, a few lost, a few races get lost along the way. No big deal. And, and Sheridan's just like, yeah, no big deal. Just, you know, whatever's one order of magnitude up from genocide. It's fine. <laughs> no big deal. It's fine. Back on B5. Also not a big deal. Shadow ships just <laughs> explode in, out of hyperspace. Everywhere. Surrounding the station. <laughs> we get the the one single shot we have of pilots running into the Star Fury, <laughs> uh, Star Fury uh, pilot area. And they recorded that back we, in season one, man. Yeah, it's season one. They've all got their little fucking ascots hanging out. And then we get like the the second of two shots that they have of like, the ship's getting like launched out of Babylon five. And then we're right back to, to crazy town um, as Morden and Anna continue their spiel, which is getting more and more tinfoil crazy eyes. <laughs> Morden is rhapsodizing about all the atrocities we've committed in the past that led us to writing sonnets <laughs> because those are super connected. Absolutely yeah, like, related. Look at, look, look at World War Two. We we split the atom because of it. And it's like, okay, that's what you're drawing from this. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> like, like we went to space. I don't remember if there was a war that caused uh, humanity to get into space flight in this universe. Yeah. Um. Maybe you've got Star Trek down the corner. They actually like pulled something meaningful out of their ass from that. Yeah. Um. But it's just like it's just like. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's love this. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually want to. When we're done with this, I actually want to talk about this in like, the, in like 
the realm of science fiction. Yeah. yeah. Because this is interesting. Same here. And then my, f- I have so many things about this that make no sense. And then they say how Anna says how in the beginning it was supposed to be that the two races were balanced. Were, there was supposed to be an equal balance. A fucking says who until the Vorlons cheated by enlisting the other races. And I'm just like, you know what? For a group that's all about like fucking the strong prosper and survival of the fittest, maybe crying cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater is not like the most cool move. Are, are they Republicans? I think they are. They're heels. They're, they're heels who are like, wait a minute, getting your friends to do a rig run in, like to save the day. That's, that's supposed to be a heel move. That's supposed to be something we do. <laughs> it's just bananas. So- they also tell him that the Vorlons, they, uh, Justin in particular gets real bent out of shape about telepaths. Uh, he, about how they engineered the races to, is it, or is it Morden? I don't know. It's not important. One of them gets all bent out of shape about how they created telepaths and how they telepaths were not naturally occurring. They engineered them in the races. And we're going to talk about that. I don't know if it's going to be a headphones thing, but we're going to talk about telepath engineering because it's fucking stupid. (laughs) It's stupid and I hate it. We're going to talk about it. Boy, I hope you guys don't plan on doing anything after this recording because we're going to be here for a while. (laughs) They tell him that the only thing standing in their way now is Sheridan. I, this is radio. You can't see the the like confused face I'm making, and I'm gesticulating again. You can't see that, but I'll tell you I'm doing it. What? And I get that Sh- I get that Sheridan is like in charge of this alliance, but also a behoof. And this is right right alongside Sheridan being like, "Well, it's just so kill me, then just kill me." And they're like, "Oh, but yeah. then but then somebody would just come and replace you." And it's like, if okay. So you can have one of these things. Either Sheridan is the linchpin at the heart of everything, or he's easily replaceable. Which which is it? Which is it, guys? Yeah. I think my sense is what what he's trying to say is they want Sheridan to like buy into their their philosophy. So he'll then be like a spy or like he he'll go back to the station being like Hey guys, the shadows are good, actually. Yeah, I don't know what they're hoping to accomplish here, honestly. We had chamomile tea. It's all cool now. Yeah, right. I don't know. I, I honestly don't understand what their end game here was, but uh, it doesn't really matter because Sheridan is basically hurt enough at this point and drops a turd in their swimming pool. He tells them that he knows what they did to Anna, and Anna's like looks shocked and Justin and Morden are like, oh, well, fuck it. Jigs up. They admit that when she first came to Zaha Doom, Anna would not agree to work with him. So they stuck her in a shadow ship. When it was discovered who she was and who he was, they pulled her out. But by then her personality was destroyed. And then Justin gets real angry. And he's like, there, I can't remember his exact line, but it's something effective. Either you, you know, something like, You serve one way or another. Everybody serves. You do what you're told and you're going to serve too or something like that. My read is that Justin spent a long time in a shadow ship and that kind of fucked him up a lot uh, because he seems extremely like volatile uh, when the subject comes up. Uh, At which point a shadow enters in the room behind him, behind Sheridan. 
But Sheridan this whole time has been not remotely discreetly reaching into his pants. Uh, not the fun way, uh, unfortunately. That would have made this scene a lot more interesting. In his pant leg, uh, he's pulling a gun out of his ankle holster. Um, how none of them noticed this since they're all sitting around a low coffee table facing each other. And he's just like, no big deal. Just got an itchy sock. Should have worn the silk ones, not the cotton. And then he pulls out a PPG and turns around and tries to shoot one shadow. Again, questions. I would like to do some arithmetic. Please bear with me. Three shadows times Vorlon equals dead Vorlon. One shadow versus dumb human with PPG equals <laughs> not dead human. Oh, we don't see the fire. I just assume that Kosh didn't have a gun. I just assume. So the, the, the obvious answer there is Kosh is a chump, <laughs> despite being a, yeah. a being Kosh that is, has lived Kosh apparently thousands it, of Kosh years. A... Or or PPGs are bizarrely powerful. Kosh like, that strap. Sheridan's, I think it Sheridan's, is legitimately. <laughs> Sheridan's rocking like the equivalent of like. Uh, a, a navy 40, deck gun, forty-four magnum. Not even that. Like I'm talking about, like he's got like an artillery deck gun, like a um, a navy deck gun in in the palm of his hand, and not the gun. No, um, uh, he's got this huge, this uh, enormous amount of firepower in his hand, and he's just like bang, bang, and then. And we don't see the firefight at all, too. No, we just see him shoot. So there's two possibilities that I see for the scene. The first is that like. Kosh is just a fucking chub, and maybe PPGs are actually effective against shadows. But like, maybe it's because it's an energy weapon. Mm-hmm. Like, it's actually effective against them. The other more likely scenario I see is that John pops a couple shots and runs a lot of fuck away. Yeah, and he's pretty beat up when we see him next. <laughs> yeah, and that's the one that's borne out by Lurker's Guide because there's an answer to the question because apparently. We aren't the only ones confused and offended by this scene. I think it's just Kosh didn't have a gun. Yeah. Kosh doesn't have a, you know, Kosh is packing. He, he, he's walking out of there with three dead shadows and he's got a smug grin on his encounter. <laughs> Draws it on with a Sharpie. Yeah, no, uh, JMS has a, there's a response in the JMS speak section for this episode where he's just like, yeah, John, you know, got a couple of shots off and then bailed in the confusion. Okay, I'll I'll let that slide so we can move on. I I think that's horseshit, but we'll let it slide. I think that's I think that's like an acceptable thing that happens in television. Yeah. I think by the metric of this episode, I don't care. There are like seven other things I think are dumber than that in this episode, and we'll get there. We cut back to Jakar, who barges into CNC with news for Ivanova. Uh she cuts him off though and says, Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we chuck a couple of those nukes out there? And he's like, Are you fucking stupid? Do you not know what 500 megatons is? We'll wipe out the whole station and a chunk of the planet below. Don't be, don't be daft. Uh, and he's like, That's why I'm here anyway. Like, two of them are missing. And she's like, Excuse me? <laughs> uh, back on Zaha Doom, John apparently has been through some shit in the last 15 seconds because when we see him, he's clawing his way down a hall like it's, like he's climbing up a mountain and then like perspe- the, like the camera shifts and he's, he's just walking down a hall. He's just like, oh, it's so hard. Like it's a hall. Like I hate this. Again, I hate this shot. It's so dumb. The choices were made in this episode. Choices were made in this episode. Uh, I swear we're almost done. He gets to the end of this hall and it's a balcony overlooking this enormous like city 
air quotes. I don't know. It's there's all kinds of like civilization down there. And he looks up and there's a dome and he looks down and there's just, you know, a gigantic pit. Why is there atmosphere there? Because we have previously established that like uh-huh. there isn't breathable atmo here. Uh, it's established that the atmosphere on the planet is extremely high. Not established, but uh, JMS's explanation is that the atmosphere on the planet is extremely high in carbon monoxide. That's why humans can't breathe it. It will take in only a few minutes. Uh, it will kill a hu- it will kill a human. But he's standing right on the edge of that passage, so there's like okay, okay. normal air coming out, but it, it's not breathable out there. So he's there, and he's and Meatbot Anna approaches him, and she's like, "I know that it's not like the real personality, but in not so many words, like I look the same. You can still shut me." And he's like, mm, "Hard pass." Uh, and then he hears, jump, jump now. He's like, okay, Obi-Wan. Uh, and then we get this shot that is repeated, like all of next season, we will see this shot. And I feel so bad for Bruce Boxlander because he looks as awkward and dumb as any human being attempting a physical feat has ever looked. All you see is like one poorly fitting pair of pants and a but and then flail. <laughs> it's just the worst shot. I I feel so bad that this is the iconic shot of this season is his gangly posterior hauling itself up over the ledge of this balcony and then throwing itself into space while the, the White Star, which he has summoned via his little handy doodle, is plowing down through the atmosphere, shatters the dome, and then the two super nukes on board pop off. We get a nice shot of Anna or Meatbot or whatever we want to call her screaming because I guess even though she's some sort of weird pseudo intelligence, she still doesn't want to get vaporized, although she seems freaked out. That's valid. Uh, and he goes down into the into the pit. The shadow ships immediately are like, fuck, and run, which is, again, nothing about this episode holds up on critical inspection. Why would you not just be like, hmm, we're running? While I'm leaving, just for fucks, like, let's just cut you in half because you just killed our planet. So why don't we just chop your space station into into fucking rubble, you know, just to be petty. But apparently that's not how these things work Uh, because it's a TV show and it was written by a man who was exhausted. That's why. On the station, everybody's confused and Ivanova gets telepath face and says, he's gone. The episode closes on a voiceover from Jakar, which is fucking terrific and is the only part of this episode I unironically like we see delen and lanier praying the only the only bit of lanier we get this episode but he does it well looks very lanierish uh a picture of anna and sheridan's quarters i have no idea what this shot is for clearly they were short like six seconds ivanova waiting for word on cnc she also is told that garibaldi never came back from his flight jakar's voiceover continues speaking of the death of hope as we see baldi's star fury captured by a shadow ship and being carried away as it's inside the shadow ship. I'm confused about how that works, but we'll get there. Uh, and then a view from above of a giant hole in Zaha Doom. Like, it's a big fucking hole where apparently that city used to be. And that's the end of season three. Woof. Um, woof. 
I think you said. Uh, you know, it only took an hour and six minutes for us to finish the summary. Well, and in fairness, though, you're not allowed to do WAF episodes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you! I can do. I can make any episode last an hour. Don't challenge me on this. Um, in fairness, in my, in my, the only defense I will offer is that I feel like we covered like thirty percent of the normal banter we would have for this episode mid episode. Uh, okay. Here's, here are the things I would like to speak about at a high level. <laughs> One, John Sheridan just committed another war crime. And I have... The man loves his... I have... Ex- I really have no... I really have no... Like, or no. I will put forward my, my, my thought pattern for Sheridan. This is not a defense, but this is a thought pair. Uh, like, a, like, sh- like Sheridan's line of thought for this. Mm-hmm. Is that... As far as he knows, like this is the main place where the shadows are. Yeah, like it's a it's a large it's a large population center. Yeah, it is. Would you like to know which parts of the UN <laughs> lo, the, the the UN <laughs> laws? Do not quote. Do not quote international law to me, sir. Article eight, section two, items one through five state. Varying degrees of de- varying types of de- decimating a civilian population center as other serious violations of the laws and customs applicable to interna- in international armed conflict within the established framework of international law. To be a war crime, it would have to be, quote, extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly. So the only way that holds up is if you believe that this was a lawful execution of force and that it was not carried out wantonly and, and i'm sorry justified by military necessity so but this isn't this isn't a dec- yeah and it was justified by military necessity i you could say that this is de- that in in terms of military tactics this is a decapitation strike this is this is the idea of mm-hmm. like just from what we're seeing here this is probably what john is thinking is like Zahadu is where all the shadows are if I'm going to be doing this, no, I, I a hundred percent. It is. I can take out as many of them as I can, and who knows? I don't know what their infrastructure looks like in terms of leadership. Maybe I'll kill Maybe some they of their have leaders. Like a queen shadow. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Uh, here's, yeah. here's my problem. One, uh, even if it is, even if it is a military necessity, uh, he tells no one he's doing it. No. So there's no yeah. way to say that this is done lawfully because it doesn't go through any sort of chain of command this isn't even a declared war well let's presume it's a declared war they have like but, councils and they have they have like yeah. a, a, an alliance of, un, of of worlds let's assume let's give him the benefit of the doubt and presume that a state of war exists between these two parties <laughs> it is absolutely wantonly done he's like gonna die might as well nuke him and jumps off a ledge that is the, the literally the textbook description of wantonly. He's like, nah, fuck it. Let's blow him up. Here's my final beef with this scene. Do you want to know what JMS's defense of this is? Oh, yeah. It's that the shadows don't have civilians. Yeah. Fuck you, which JMS. Is, which, uh, which is so... He has no objection. He's like, yeah, it's a war crime, but it's okay because there's no civilians. Hey, JMS, guess what? You can still commit war crimes against enemy combatants buddy pal I, yeah i mean this is more like yeah like I, i'm not i'm not on the sheridan and like like 
this is this is Sheridan proving now that he's like, yeah, I like me some nukes. <laughs> yeah, um, um, I I I do think, however, that it's like this is one of those things where it's just like it's science fiction, so we we pull back a little bit. It's the thing of like. Would you use the Sun Crusher to blow up a solar system full of Imperials? Hey, Kevin J. Anderson, let's talk about this. Well, in okay, uh, to, Sorry, to, to be to fair, to be fair, I think Kevin J. Anderson has a habit of writing war crimes as well. For example, <laughs> I mean, all of his moon books. Yes, as as the, the a matter of fact, I was going crime? to fucking dunk. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I don't have the the website open, but there is a specific one about uh, weapons, like chemical weapons and other 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 kinds of weapons designed for torture. This is also one of those things where it gets like iffy because it's like science fiction is like the shadows, as far as we know, are interest. They they are committing a war of extermination, and sure. Well, okay, and this is the point. I think I think the whole thing here is that Sheridan is approaching this with the I'm going to do what I do. Let's, you know, God and the universe will judge me after the war. And this is exactly where I decided to make that fucking gif. Because I've been (laughs) watching Daredevil again, and I remembered that scene where he's like, it's not about morals, it's not about right or wrong, it's just about the facts. And the facts are, John Sheridan committed another war crime. Is he justified? (laughs) Is it okay that he committed a war crime? That's not for me to decide. I simply looked up the statutes on what a war crime is, and John Sheridan committed a war crime. That's my hill. Uh, I'm going to stand on it, and I will fucking fight you. Well, and and, and, in justification, JMS, like, should have, he should have just left it at the, like, you know, okay, Sheridan made a calculated decision that by nuking this planet he was saving like literal hundreds of billions of lives yeah. like yeah. The, the, the entire like, line of thought he should have left is, it at that and not been like oh well yeah. the shadows don't really have civilians because they're evil yeah yeah john even says in the episode he's like maybe if i do what i do i can stop centauri prime from right. happening which I think is like that's all the reasoning like that that's like that's all the reasoning you need to give for that sort of thing, um, and again writers tried to overexplain John Sheridan using nukes ruins John Sheridan using nukes. Yeah, <laughs> my thing that is not war crimes. I want to talk about the bullshit philosophy. Oh my god! Of both the Varlons and both the, the shadows. I mean, it kind of is a war crime, just not like. You know, one in no, which people it's just, die. It's a literary. It's a literary crime. That's Phil- I would say philosophical, but philosophical. Uh, sure. Okay. But I, so the Vorlons, the Vorlons, I think are like we don't ever get the Vorlons' philosophy from their point of view <laughs> because the Vorlons are too fucking blockheaded to give us their actual philosophy. Um, just they just say it. they just say insolent, <laughs> nice, disobedient. Um. But, like, their whole thing is just, like, that, like, oh, hey, you know, we're going to guide races along. We're going to set them along evolutionary paths, like, with apparently popping some telepath genes in there. And some, in, and in some like, blood. you know, okay, we're definitely angels. Yep. Yep. That's us. Yeah. Is this where I get to talk about where telepaths come from? Yeah. Well, when, okay. a, when a daddy, so, uh, telepath daddy and a mommy a telepath love each other very much. <laughs> 
No, it's not. That's what's fucking <laughs> bananas about this. Okay. Um, I'm not going to consider this headphones material. I've been thinking about it. And since okay. it comes from, one part comes from a graphic novel and another part <laughs> comes from one of the novels, which are considered canon, but I don't think- I think we're fine. Any of us are ever going to read these godforsaken EU, B5 EU sources. I think I've read a bunch of them. Some of them I remember being decent, but also I read them when I had much worse taste. Yeah, the Valen comics are actually really good, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so here's, here is the logic. In the B5 universe, telepathy cannot evolve naturally in an intelligent species under the logic that if you're a telepath, why would you ever evolve sentience? What? Squints. No. It, it it actually kind of works. Say you are a mouse with telepathy. A predator's coming for you. You have telepathy. You tell it, I'm not here. So it goes away. You are never forced to evolve into a more complex. You, the, you Because of your telepathy, you never ex- experience evolutionary pressures to drive you up. You never are forced to develop tool use or anything else. So as a consequence... All naturally evolving telepaths are basically primitive life forms that have mild telepathy that let them avoid predators or let them be better predators, and that's all they ever are. The Vorlons go out, harvest all this shit, and they they make a race of beings that I, what do they call them? The Grigori, they're referred to as. They make super telepath cave people and stick them all on the planet. And then they take the the genes out of these like mega telepath cave people that live all on this one planet. And then they go around dropping these genes all throughout to through all the races in space. Just yeah, just a little little spice little, little, a little, little spice telepathy ba- telepathy bay. Didn't, didn't Star Trek Next Generation do this? Uh sort uh, of. Yeah, there was there's a precursor <laughs> race, but they don't they didn't like they, they were they were they were doing a lot more than just the telepathy gene. They were jerking it into every gene pool they could find. <laughs> so they dropped this gene everywhere. And in the series of books, there's a guy that goes out and actually finds these things. These like mega telepathy cave people and it's this whole fucking bananas plot line but like that's where telepathy comes from are these like super telepath cave people that have no real intelligence of their own except obey vorlons that's all they know they basically live like monkeys in the jungle and have mega telepathy it's pretty dumb it's a good idea that is taken to an illogical stupid extreme and I kind of love it. That argument of why you wouldn't have telepathy and then sentience holds some water. But why would, Why is it impossible to have sentience and then telepathy without Vorlons intervening? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess the, the thing is that, like, if you develop sapience, it becomes that you already have communication. And so you're and so, like, I guess you never evolve that. Um, um, or you don't need to evolve it. There will be um, like some. I guess that might be like. So some do in a different way, but that's a, a different kind of spoilers. We're not going to get into. Okay. But yeah, I thought that was fucking shenanigans and hilarious. That that's that's how they get there. They have these like telepathic cave people. I'm shocked that neither of you gave me a reaction like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Telepathic <laughs> cave people. This was not the answer I was expecting. Okay. That's fine. I was really hoping that it was like tele- telepathic, like 
fish or something, but no, it's like cave people, which is not nearly as fun. Oh, and then they they tried to blow the planet up uh, at one point. So that's cool. Yeah, we've got the we've got the the Vorlons who are like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna like we believe that order fosters growth. Um, they're they're very much the like we are going to carefully tend to our gardens, and I, and it's a very paternalistic view of. Uh, evolution. Meanwhile, we've got the <laughs> shadows over here who are like your fucking tw- mid 2000s hot topic emo sociologists who are just like evolution can only can only blossom from conflict. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it's fucking bullshit. Yeah. Uh, you know what they are? It's, uh, I realized this literally as we were watching as we were talking about this just now. Destiny has this exact same thing. And I'm sure they're not the only video game sci-fi property that does this. This whole idea of like one side of the of the coin does the, the garden and one side of the coin does the chaos is like, I mean, there I would bet a lot of money that the uh, TV Tropes article on like that trope of one one side chaos, one side. It's got to be a fucking book. Yeah, it has to be a goddamn book. I mean, it has to be enormous. We see this. We'll see this a lot. I I cannot name a specific instance of this, but there are a number of instances of like sci-fi races that believe like, yeah, only conflict will like conflict is what fosters evolution and stuff. From a a point of view of the shadows, I guess my thing is, what is their end goal? Because so, or, or like because. One would think if we're trying to find the strong races or create or, or create a evolutionary Ubermensch species through like the strong survive, mm-hmm. what are they being prepared for? Because I think this is like I think this is a thing that like it makes sense if there's something worse than the shadows. So I don't think we get a little we get the answer to this in season four, which you've already seen. And you've already seen the explanation for this. Uh, the explanation for this with Lorian. He says, uh, initially they were copying him just the way that he, he and his, his race husbanded these other, the younger races. They copied the, the shadows and the Vorlons started out by copying, doing mm-hmm. what they had done, like out of respect, kind of like pass it up, pa- you know, pay it forward. We were raised up out of the chaos out of the the mire by this this earlier race we want to do the same to these other races but then they kind of like forgot how it all started and it became like a competition between the vorlons and the shadows for who's got the better way of doing it and it stopped yeah. they stopped thinking about like why and now it's only about like fuck you in particular <laughs> and everything you're planning yeah cuz i think like once we get to that i feel like it loses and and you know maybe this will get ex- like explored a little bit, but it feels very pointless. Oh, like, no, super pointless. Yeah, it's super pointless, and that's not unintentional. Yeah, I think it's like interesting because the usually when we see this trope, the the, the that fostering race is aware of some other factor that is acting as a great filter mm-hmm. um, for people who are maybe not familiar with that term. I will do a quick, quick summary of that. There is the um, astro-sociological concept of the Fermi paradox, which is that it is mathematically unlikely that we are the only here, like we are the only advanced species in even our own galaxy 
why aren't there why haven't we found another species and the answer that the great filter provides is that maybe there is something a barrier of some sort that prevents species from reaching a point where they can contact other species on different planets this this gets explored a lot in science fiction and it's it's on my mind particularly right now because i've been playing mass <laughs> effect where that is a re- it's not referenced in name but it's referenced in theme and i feel like yeah it's like it's usually when we see that like race that like oh hey we need we need to make stronger races or stronger species there's a point to it there's an end game there's something even worse out there and i i just like thinking about the shadows it's like made me think of that yeah but yeah no they're 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 just they're just too they're two kids who forgot how to do for, forgot they're, they're doing the thing but they forgot why they're doing it which is interesting in its own way yeah no the one the one other thing i'm going to point out that's super petty but the like 90s game show-esque sound of the stone walls like, being moved up and down how do you how dare you how dare you besmirch the, uh, legends of the hidden <laughs> thank you for getting that reference how do you go pee at night without waking up like everybody within a mile? <laughs> You're just trying to like sneak out to the fridge to get like Yeah, you just go over to the balcony and, and pee off the balcony. I just Yeah. Listen, sometimes you just want to go get a pudding cup. Yeah, man, you just want to like hit that bag of candy you picked up at fucking <laughs> the the mall and instead it's just like <laughs> This is good foley. <laughs> oh man, it's fucking bananas. It's so loud. And it's I get it. It's it's not rational, but also like it's just it, it's just so cartoonishly fucking loud in in those scenes. I just my first thought was like, good lord, how would that not drive you absolutely insane within like four hours of being in that complex? So my my question with this episode, I wonder if Morden has ever been in one of those ships or if he was just like that. I I truly believe that Morden is just a rat <laughs> who was like because because it's like basically it's like he he very much strikes me as a dude who is just he's also like the sanest of the three. Yeah. I don't he, know man. Is, the look on his face when he's talking about that anthill was really uncomfortable. It feels so I think he's like I think he is the person who had like He's probably the dude on the Icarus who was like a quartermaster. He wasn't actually like a scientist. He was there for like, hi, I'm here for the corporate contact for IPX. I'm a human piece of shit. <laughs> oh, you know who he and is? And, you, know and who the he, shadows... you know who he reminds me of? Who's that? Uh, I don't remember the actor's name. All I remember is he was he had a sitcom with Helen Hunt in the 90s. <laughs> um... We're gonna look this He's up. Got like, okay, in Aliens, not the, not the first one, but the second. Mad about you? Yeah, the guy, the guy in that, in Aliens, he's the corporate stooge that tries to to bring an alien back inside oh, yeah. Ripley. Yeah, kind of a roundabout way of getting there, but yeah, yeah, that's who Morden uh, uh, seems like to me. He's the guy that like he's the toady. Yeah, that is like, hmm, willingly serve. Or, you know, be a weird ship computer. 
I'll serve. And they're like, well, we're going to stick you in the ship anyway, just to make sure you're crazy enough for us. And he's like, oh, no. Yeah. Because there's no way. There's no way. Morgan has a little ship time as a treat. I feel like they, I mean, I feel like everybody gets some ship time. Yeah. Like just a little bit just to be like. Just to to iron out the edges, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, personally, I think that, I think that like he is a person who would have like done it, like who who does it and just like. Like he was the IP, he was the IPX corporate stooge, and like he did. I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to do ship time to do that. You just need to be a corporate bitch, (laughs) and like five years of doing that, you you around various shadow people, you just sort of just become like that. Yeah, I don't think he needed ship time. The other thing, um, the the thing where Anna is like, I'm so sorry, I wasn't able to contact you, and it's like, buddy. Morden has been off Azaha Doom for like three years now. Like, you could have sent a message through him. Like, there are numerous ways that you could have like sent a fucking text. Yeah, like two years ago, she could have sent a, she could have like slipped Morden a note or just come along with Morden. Yeah. Or had Morden be like, hey, by the way, yes, I do remember your wife. She's back at my, she's back at my place. I mean, <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, like, you know, that, I mean, on a, on a meta level, we understand why she did not do that. But like, but her being like, I'm yeah. so sorry, I wasn't able to contact you. It's like, that's horseshit, lady. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. So the other thing that I think is like funny about this episode is that John ends up bootstrapping himself. Yep. I, he basically is like, I've got to try and outthink time <laughs> <Bye>. travel. <laughs> and he, yeah, he, he's he's smart enough to be dumb enough. Yeah, yeah. Which, which honestly, love it. I was just surprised that the shadow people didn't ask John, "What do you want?" I don't. Yeah, uh, I think it's because I think it was because like at this point he is fully the the army. He's he is the the leader of the army of the light, and he already sort of like really positioned himself as what he did. By asking, who are yeah. you? The, the other thing I wanted to note was, we talked about how awful that scene is with Delenn and John mm. in, in his office, right? Which we we all agree is that, I don't know whether it was a writing or direction or what have you, but that, that does not play well, the, the beginning of that scene. However, the scene overall always feels like, a mirror to me of the the scene between Delenn and Jakar earlier in the season, where she finally comes clean to him about like that they made the choice to hang Narn out to dry. And Jakar is like, I understand, but also I I might be able to forgive you someday, but that day is not today. And I feel like yeah. I feel like John is maybe in a bit of the same headspace of like you know, even by later in the episode, he kind of wraps his head around it, works through what Delenn's intentions are and comes to terms with it. But in that moment, it's like, maybe I'll be able to handle this like later, but not now. <laughs> I'm not yeah. okay now. Poor Delenn with that, you know, the, the two two hitter there, having to have that conversation with two people. Yeah, I mean... That that's sort of the well, well, well. If it isn't the consequences of my decisions, <laughs> yeah. 
I, I just also want to repeat the point. Anna says, yeah, if, if, if any Vorlon stuff touches Zaha Doom, it dies. Or the, the, the shadows will die. Guess what happened? <laughs> <laughs> also, okay. Okay, I have... I have a question. So, so Justin, you've watched to the beginning of season four, and you know that Morden survives. Yes. How? Yes. I just I just assume that Morden's a cockroach. <laughs> How? He's in the vaporization radius. He's in the vaporization t- radius um, of a gigaton nuclear gun. Two, two, yeah, I, uh, two five hundred megaton warheads. Yeah. Which, by the way, I I, I, did, I looked this up earlier. 500 megatons is the combined weight of all nuclear testing in mm-hmm. human history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, you know, great. Now, I just choose to believe that Morden is a rat fuck who cannot die. Uh, so, <laughs> Or who cannot die unless you see it on screen. Yeah. Uh, I have a theory about that. And here's my theory. Two part. Part one, the rationalization is that while Sheridan was going one direction, Morden went the other and, like, got in a ship or something like that to, like, I don't know. He had other shit to do. McDonald's run. I don't know. Whatever. He had to get out of the vaporization radius, though. Yeah, he just gets in a ship, pulls up to McDonald's. One black coffee. Yeah, one black coffee. <laughs> um, the second part is... I think it might be because Veer predicted the way he's going to die. And I think there might be like, maybe there's like prophecy, certain prophecy has to happen. Do you know what I mean? Can, can I, can I deposit my utter batshit hypothesis? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is not one more. To- <laughs> oh, that's good. He's a pod person. So I think what, I think, I think what happened was that when 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 the Icarus goes to Zaha Doom, they find this utter rat fuck of a human being. Yeah. And the shadows are like, hey. And Morden's like, hey. Um and they're like, hey, would you um be interested in serving us? Please yeah. please step into this pod. Would you would you mind if we made clones of you and flash and printed your personality on these clones? And he's like Fuck me up, fam. <laughs> and he's like, I could be more of an asshole to more people across the universe. Sign me the fuck up. And um, I just choose to believe, like, I choose to no, believe I'm right the Morden we, yeah. we see in, like, the early season four with all the birds and everything is one who's just in, like, the, the far radiation range. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's just the lone like, survivor he, of the Morden clone banks. This is immediately my favorite, yeah. like, and can we, like, there hasn't been, like, there's nothing about cloning that we've encountered in Babylon 5 so far. Um, and nothing yeah. for, like, flash imprinting a personality on someone. Though, let's talk about, apparently they broke Anna, but she's got, like, a pretty well-assembled AI. She's, like, modern AI levels of, like... Savvy, like you could have a conversation with her for like five minutes, but once you get to thirty, you realize something's up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it actually raises an interesting question there of like the shadows don't really use telepaths. Yeah. So how do you go about like rebuilding a personality? What do they do? Did they like sit her down and make her watch Sesame Street on <laughs> high speed for like 
an entire two years until they like put her back together. I mean, but there, this is also a race that's literally like millions of years old. Yeah, maybe they do some shit with like memory engrams. Yeah, or, or maybe they legitimately. Well, and there's some implication that the memories are intact. You just go bonkers. Yeah. So her her personality is there. So like, how did they rebuild that without a telepath? Because the obvious answer there is they have a telepath do it, but they yeah, don't. But they don't have, want. But they don't. But apparently them. they don't use telepaths. Maybe it is some. Maybe it's something like they just they use technology for yeah. like. That neurological stuff. Yeah, they just grow a new personality. Oh, that's oh, I w- that'd be weird and gross. They literally grow a new personality like a fucking tumor in there. Or I, I I'd also uh, accept the option of like they subject the person to a whole bunch of stimuli and like you know when they respond well they don't get zapped and respond when they respond badly they get zapped. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Something along those lines. That that seems pretty on brand. Yeah, I think it like it leads to a point where it's like it's interesting to think about and I I'm glad that we don't get these questions answered or at least we don't yeah. have them answered now cuz it's like I think these are fun spaces to play in. And yeah, I'm overall I'm like for especially riding on this episode, it's like it's a good episode for like the emotional payoffs of a bunch of stuff. Um I, I or at least I do. I think uh, here's here. I will very briefly respond to that, and that is, as I said in my summary, this is an episode. I strongly believe that this is an episode that, not unlike a college newspaper held up in the rain, dissolves immediately under critical analysis. I feel like this is an episode. Yeah. That I, I, I can I can see how you get to that. I, I like I will, I don't think I'm as harsh on this one as JMS wrote at the tail end of a marathon season of writing, and I think it just melts when you when you look at it too closely. Uh, speaking of which, I have a weird factoid about this season. Sorry. Well, I think my problem is that it should have been 90 minutes. Yeah, this could have been a two-parter. Yeah, yeah I think being a two-parter would have let it breathe a bit. Um, that this is a this is a two-parter worth of content that got crammed into forty-two minutes. It's a, it's a forty-three-minute episode, and they leave the station at minute twenty-three. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, they spend half the episode watching Anna be a weird a, a weird pseudo human around the station. Yeah, that if if we'd had the first half be dealing with Anna on the station and the second half be, you know, them going to and getting to Zahadoom, et cetera. I think giving it a little bit more slack time-wise would have probably improved it substantially, giving mm-hmm. it some room to breathe. Because it's it's very fast-paced, but I think that the ultimately that that means sometimes sometimes that means that it's good. And I think that it, you know, if you aren't watching this episode critically, I think, you know, generally I have the impression of like, yeah, that slaps because it's like, you know, everything keeps going, you know, in very fast sequence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of action, things get resolved. It's just that the like transitional pieces when you start, when you stop and look at it, don't quite work. JMS claims, I did not bother to fact check this claim, that he is the first American to write an entire season of television entirely him, entirely themselves. He was beat to the punch internationally 
by the guy who wrote the first season of Blake Seven. But that's a British series, so it's got like seven 13. episodes that are all <laughs> thirteen. Okay, that's 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 more impressive. Yes. That's his claim. I don't know if it's true, but this is the claim he makes on Lurker's Guide. It doesn't seem implausible, at least. Yeah, or like what it seems like is it's it's very likely that he could have been the first person to do it for like a twenty-two episode dramatic presentation hour-long format yeah. series. Yeah. I I I feel like there is somewhere where we could have seen that. I the. The, the fact of it is that television writing has drastically changed in the last 15 years. Yeah. To where, like, one or two people writing the entire se- uh, writing an entire season of television, um, especially in the prestige drama format, is fairly common. Like, or, or writing an entire season of television where they don't have any other guests, or it, it tends to, or, like, you have, like, had writers and you have like people who are like do like script doctoring and stuff but like in 1995 with the way that television works at that point where any like regular show you'll have a right like you'd have a writing staff and it would just be like hey episode three episode four episode five and like you know they'd all be written by different people and then just like how star trek would do it and stuff where anybody could fucking write a star trek episode yeah. It's like you've got the you've got, you know, the style guide for the show and have at it. But yeah, the um I like it's pretty believable. Unfortunately, there's not really an easy way yeah. to check this. Honestly, I'd probably believe it at this point like I think especially for like I think my beef with the not a beef. I think my eye roll with that claim was that who gives a shit? It's I think it, it, it I think it actually is an impressive. No, but that's that, no that's my yeah. thing. Who cares if you're first? Who cares if you're the first or second man on the moon? Like, you've walked on the moon. Like, you really got a dick measure about whether you were, like, seven seconds faster to get down the ladder than the other guy? You walked on the moon. Don't be... Who cares? Um, yeah. I, I think it is, like, he, like for American television, though, it is, like, a bit of a turning point. And I think it is, like... Yeah. He, I think it could just be something like, yeah... I don't think anybody's ever done this before, which is like crazy. Yeah, I think it's an enormous feat and it doesn't like it, it couldn't ma- it couldn't matter less whether someone had ever done it before. For this show, it obviously was an enormous feat to do it. It, it deserves respect all on its own. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to the feat will be repeated next season. Because um, yep. it's yep. funny in Lurker's yeah. Guide, he's like. He's like, I'm not, I, I can't possibly do this again. That would be stupid. No, it's next. <laughs> yeah, no, he does it again and next almost year. almost again the year after. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah, there, uh, Harlan Ellison gets, I think, two co-writing and credits. And Neil Gaiman in, gets in one season writing. Five, and there's the Neil Gaiman episode. Wow. Yeah. Is he, hold on, I, now I have to look this, this quote up, because he, he has a really funny quote about writing. Because, yeah, he ends up writing 92 out of 110 episodes. Jesus, no wonder he. I mean, uh, no wonder he's kind of a bit too emotionally invested at some points. I think that, like, the, the, the things that Babylon 5, like, we've seen with, like, other writers who handle this is that like Jameis maybe didn't have the best way to like handle here we go well it's done I have today turned in the first draft of script number 22 for year three which I suppose could be called a cliffhanger episode this marks the first time in the 50 plus year history of American television that one person has single-handedly written an entire season of a series the closest record is Terry Nation who wrote the 13 episode first season of Blake 7 
I have no plans to do this next season, by the way. This was necessary because of the substantive changes in the B5 universe this season. Next season is a very different story, literally as well as figuratively. Well, next season, there would have been, he would have been um, given the news that they had been axed. Yeah. So substantive so changes same, again. Uh, there's also an extensive section here where he is talking about how he could submit it as the entire season as like a book for the the Hugos or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think it would have been interesting because it is it was one creative it, it's one creator. Yeah. I I find those like to be really weird because it's like yeah, it, it, or I could go on yeah. to the thing about like like dramatic presentation. Well, it's it's obviously you have a, you have like 10 different or you have like five different five or six different directors. Yeah. So, like unless you're individually unless you're submitting just the screenplays but it's not it's dramatic presentation so there are six directors and um anyways i i get grumpy about like this is why we always like include the directors in this because i'm like no like as much as jamis wants to think and we should call out the director for this one it's adam nimoy again yes who i i deliver the best episode of season three but um, I think that there is, I, yeah, I think it's one of those things. It's like we all, all like I try to do it. Like and like, if we ever covered a comic book on the show, we'd include the letterer because that's yep. like you know because uh, I mean it's just like the, the like television is a highly collaborative art form. Yeah, it's, uh, and as much as JMS wants you to think that it's all him, the um, writing the whole season is quite an accomplishment though considering how many yeah. episodes there were yeah. i hope i hope that man had a good keyboard and like remembered to hydrate i think it is like impressive and and, and like turning in 22 scripts like man i'm tired thinking of that <laughs> yeah seriously there there are acclaimed tv writers who haven't done 22 scripts <laughs> you could have like axed exogenesis and made this a two-parter though like yeah. so easily. Yeah, but Marcus yeah. isn't in this episode. Yeah, but you could have put you could have put Marcus content you with two with two episodes here, you could have put Marcus content in. Uh I have a few bits and bobs at the end if we're done with the substantive <laughs> conversation part of this. As I mentioned, Melissa Gilbert was Bruce Boxleitner's second wife, who he married in 1995. They divorced in 2011. Uh using her as Anna Sheridan was JMS's idea as the original actress for Anna Sheridan wasn't available, and he figured, well, if it's got to be somebody different, this would be clever. Why not? And then uh, for Hey, I Know That Face, Melissa Gilbert, again, is probably best known for playing Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie when she was a child. But we don't care about No, that. what we do care about is the fact that she played, she was the voice of Barbara Gordon on the only Batman animated series that really matters, Batman the Animated Series. How... Dare you, sir, when the Brave and the Bold exists. The Brave and the Bold is fine. My son loves it. The Brave and the Bold is fantastic. It is whatever. Man, I knew I recognized her voice from somewhere. Batman the Animated Series is the canonical Batman. All other Batmans are fine. Batman the Animated Series is where all other Batmans branch off of. That is my opinion. (laughs) Opinion. I didn't say it was fact. I'm just saying you're wrong if you believe otherwise. Yeah, she was the voice of Barbara Gordon for the whole run of that thing. Additionally, the guy who plays Justin, Jeff Corey, played Places in the original Star Trek episode, The Cloudminders, as well as appearing on like half of every TV show you ever heard of in the 70s and 80s. He's a very busy boy. (laughs) 
I never watched the original Star Trek epi- series, so I have no fucking clue what the cloud mind is. I don't is remember that episode. He played. I've, I've watched through Star Trek original series God knows how many times. It's about it's about some people who live in the sky who subjugate people who live oh, on the ground. One of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they like they 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 uh, yeah, as, I, as opposed to the one where there are people who live in the caves and who subjugate the people who live outside of the caves or the ones where <laughs> that's a wild show. Okay, I guess we should do like a quick like wrap up on like season three, and I mean quick. <laughs> yeah, let's well let's 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 give it let's let's ha- let's have some fun with it. Uh, what is your one sentence? review of season three finally we get some fucking payoff i overall i would say that like this is a it delivers on both plot lines that we've been setting up both in terms of earth and of the shadows um setting both into motion they're playing the music i think it's interesting like how quickly the earth stuff gets relatively dropped after the 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 big quadriptic yeah they don't give a shit after that. Um, just like we don't hear Earth stuff again for the rest of the season. Yet. Really. Like, I get it. You <laughs> want to focus on the Shadow War, but it just feels like it is dropped. Yeah. Like a hard rock. I don't think there's any episodes that I was like, if I was rewatching season three in full and I was like looking through these and I was like, I'm I, I like and I wasn't like, I want to just speed run it. Like, I don't think there's any skips here. Like, from yeah. my point of view. Yeah, fair enough. Like, I'm not skipping yeah, X and Genesis. No, there's too much himbo. I'm not skipping Grey 17. Yeah. Um, my my one-sentence review of this season would be, season three is where Babylon 5 becomes the show it wants to be and starts to jump, starts to rattle off the rails just a little bit. That is my, like, tell me more elevator pitch review of season three. Because there's so much going on in season three and so much of B5, like what you think of as B5 is shit that happens in season three. But it's also where you start to see some of the stuff like maybe it's going a little too fast. Maybe you're exceeding the recommended speed for trains of that of that weight capacity Mm -hmm. on those rails. And it's probably not visible to you right now because you haven't seen the whole series and you're not going to see how this plays out. Until entirely too soon at the rate we're watching these fucking episodes. But there are definitely some like some some rattling hinges starting to 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 to, to be visible. But not in a bad way. Just like you can see where like Yeah. In season two, JMS has the story like fucking ratcheted down. He knows exactly where it is, and the world has not fucked up his plan too much yet. Season three, like fucking chaos has started to get in there and uh i think yeah because at this that's not a bad thing at this point we've had you know not only has he had to change the ship captain or station captain the telepath changed up the telepath and he's also changed the overall timeline at this point yeah and it's season again next yeah and and it's season four where you'll see you know the whole show looking down the barrel of you got one season wrap it up I, I think this is I think it's interesting and I uh, I don't I don't want to sound mean like this but I'm glad it happens this way because I like imperfect art. Yeah. I feel like my one sentence review is just going to be Kronk saying, "Oh yes, yeah, all coming together." <laughs> 
Nice. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a really solid season. That I mean, I think I think the the two episodes that you mentioned, Exogenesis and Gray Seventeen. I was surprised by how much I like Gray Seventeen. Exogenesis has some really solid Marcus content, but that's the only it's only saving grace um, that could have been put into something else that wasn't that yeah. godforsaken episode. I think that I think that the yeah. season would have benefited from JMS sharing the reins a little bit that having the having the singular creative vision throughout it i think has some benefits but just, just, i think just get a buddy yeah just just get a buddy i mean but we've seen his choice in friends <laughs> Oof, true facts um I, I, but yeah i think that like what like i this could have used to like not even like other people like writing full episodes but two people like handling b plots i you okay? No, I know what this is. JMS is right now is a GM who won't share his plans. <laughs> yeah, and he has an idea for how he wants the campaign to end, and he knows exactly what he wants. But he is at the point right now where he he doesn't want to. He thinks it's great. He thinks he's got it locked in here. He could stand to talking to another DM about yeah. it and like saying, hey, what do you think of this? Or, hey, could you design, help me, like, could you look at this encounter? Yeah. And the other DM looks at his season five plans and is like, ooh. But I think it's also like, he could he could have really used like some ideas of like, hey, maybe you should like take X thing. Like, you know, like there like there's some pacing issues. Yeah. I think that that show he up needs here, like an, and I think what, what like they call it a, a, an alpha reader group that some some writers yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like, and he could have used some like secondary viewpoints. Yeah. I think by by the end of the season, it sort of seems a little bit tired, and the writing has gotten a little bit on the sloppy side. Yeah, I, I think like there's definitely I don't want to say burnout, but it feels, but it's just like. There's definitely like a point where it's like rushing to the end and putting it all through. Um, this is a weird production thing, but in the U.S., they had a like a they had a four month break between War Without End and the rest of the season. That's wild. So War Without End uh, aired May twentieth, and Walkabout aired September thirtieth, and so it goes through all that. And Zothadoom airs October 28th. Hour of the Wolf airs the next week. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, so I have no idea what that production schedule looks like. Um, but that's got to be wild. Of, like, I would have loved to see more DC Fontana episodes. Because yeah. she she wrote some of the pretty solid one-offs. Yeah, she did... I'm trying to remember. She, yeah, she did Warfare, which is pretty good. Um, Distant Star, which I is a... Flawed but good episode. Yeah, I feel like I feel like her episodes had kind of a solid skeleton to them, um, but maybe didn't quite align with the like show bible slash style guide. Yeah. But you know, she would have been she would have been a fairly good choice to spread out some of the effort. Alright. As evidence of how much we've been focusing on season three, we have been we don't have a guide for season four plotted out yet so we don't know what we're going to be covering next time it's probably going to be hour of the wolf and whatever happened to mr garibaldi but who knows we'll probably at least recover one of them next time yep until then no surrender 
no retreat. Drink if they got him. See you next time. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.